The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation ordinance and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode 1, we broke ground on the fact that, as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, 
Marriage is in reality a creation ordinance designed, instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding, as a classical example of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. In part 3, we began our goal of diligently searching out Scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have, over time, incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or His Word. As we concluded episode 3, we had just examined several scriptural references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In this episode, we turn our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. We begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 40, which is an entire chapter devoted by Paul the Apostle to giving advice and counsel from God's Word to believers regarding the biblical relationships between men and women, and in particular, marriage. Reading verses 1 through 9, we find the following, quote, Now concerning the things whereof he wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontingency. But I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself. But every man hath his proper gift of God, and one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But, if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." Unquote. Up to this point in the above verses, the important thing to observe first is found in verse 6, where Paul says that what he has just stated in verses 1 through 5 is by quote-unquote permission and not quote commandment unquote. 
Based upon their original word translated permission, a better translation would be to say that what Paul has just said in verses 1 through 5 is his opinion, guided by personal experience, as well as drawing upon a previous body of established sound doctrine. The previous body of established doctrine was the Word of God, Scripture, in context. Paul was then using that doctrine to draw conclusions, most of which were in keeping with the whole, but some of which were not to be construed as a commandment from God. Next, we have the purpose and reason for Paul's writing of chapter 7 given in verse 1. Apparently, someone inside the Corinthian church wrote Paul a letter. In that letter, the writer asked Paul some questions regarding whether it was quote-unquote, good for a man to touch a woman or not. Now, we don't know the specific nature of the problem prompting the question, but based upon the language and the answers given, we can make some very logical conclusions which help us to understand Paul's advice and, more importantly, God's will on the matter. First of all, the word translated, quote, touch, unquote, is not merely some casual touching which might cause contamination or cooties. Instead, the word translated touch refers to intercourse or cohabitation involving carnal knowledge of a woman. So the real question posed was, quote, is it acceptable and or moral for a man to have sexual intercourse with a woman, unquote? Now bear in mind that we are not talking about sexual intercourse, i.e. touching of one's wife in marriage. This is because we already know that God created marriage between a man and a woman for this purpose in mind. If we exclude marriage from the issue of touching, then we are left with touching outside marriage, which would include fornication and or adultery. Since we would hope and assume that sincere believers would know that adultery was wrong, we would narrow the list to fornication. Just as a reminder, fornication is simply an act of sexual intimacy or sexual activity or sexual intercourse between two people. Thus, we can infer that there were one or more persons in the Corinthian church who were engaged in just such relationships involving fornication. Further, for whatever reason, the existence of such relationships were known to the church, and that knowledge was enough of a debate point and or problem that it was necessary for someone to write to Paul to get his advice in an effort to resolve the debate and restore order to the church. Paul's answers give us further confirmation on the fact the above is true and gives us insight into the mainstream of Jewish thought since Paul was a Pharisee taught in classical Old Testament Jewish scholarship by the likes of Gamaliel. More importantly, Paul had the advantage of being given personal revelation, discernment, and wisdom via his conversion on the road to Damascus, as well as his subsequent dialogues with the apostles regarding the teachings of Jesus 
whom they had personally known. As we look at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that in order to avoid fornication, that is, sexual intercourse and consequential impurity, Paul advised every man to have his own wife. This again is because marriage between one man and one woman is the only place, the only arrangement wherein the act of sexual intercourse, carnal knowledge, i.e. touching of a woman, is designed by God as an activity which is blessed and acceptable. Next, Paul states, quote, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontingency." Unquote. It is interesting that the word translated, quote, benevolence, unquote, is a compound Greek word. The first part of the word has the idea of, quote, acting rightly, unquote, or, quote, having the welfare of someone else in mind, unquote. The second part refers to, quote, sexual intimacy or intercourse, unquote. Hence, paraphrase the verse might read, quote, let the husband fulfill his obligation to care for the intimate and sexual needs of his wife. In the same way, the wife also unto the husband, unquote. Paul says that the wife does not have power of her own body. The husband does. And the husband does not have power over his own body. The wife does. What this entails is this. When a man and woman come together in biblical marriage under God's covenant ordinance, the two become one flesh in the eyes of God. They are still two people with different roles, responsibilities, functions, and gifts. But because of sin, they also have different shortcomings, faults, weaknesses, and temptations. Yet, in all of this, both should, if sincere believers, have the common purpose to have their individual and joint efforts to be to glorify, serve, worship, and honor God in all that they do. Upon marriage, the husband places his body, his welfare, his needs into a trust as a gift to his wife, with his wife acting as the fiduciary executress, keeping faithfully using and honoring what the husband has given her. The wife, likewise, also places her body, her welfare, her needs into a trust as a gift to her husband, with her husband acting as the fiduciary executor, keeping faithfully using and honoring what the wife has given him. Each acts with the love of Christ to diligently serve, honor, and put the needs of the other above their own. All things that they do are done as unto the Lord with thanksgiving, prayer, and zeal as to the welfare of their spouse. 
Thus, instead of a selfish mindset, both are selfless, sacrificing their own needs to be sensitive and compassionate to the needs of the other. This is the highest level of love that there is. The Bible refers to this type of love with the Greek word agape. Agape love is a selfless, sacrificial love for the benefit of others, best and perfectly demonstrated by Jesus by his act of his love for his people by dying on the cross for them. As we look at it, we must confess that it is beyond anything which any of us can hope to attain by our own efforts. It is impossible for man, but for God, all things are possible. He can even work through an imperfect lump of clay like me if I will but trust in him to do so and get out of the way. Paul continues on to warn us not to, quote, defraud one the other except by consent. Here again, we carry over the idea of a man and a woman who have placed themselves into a trust and each is acting as the fiduciary executor of the other. In such cases, an executor must act with complete moral and ethical honesty. To do otherwise constitutes fraud. Hence, we are exhorted not to defraud one another. In order to prevent such fraud, it is necessary to seek consent or permission from one's spouse. Here, the obvious subject under discussion is one of sexual intimacy. Paul recognizes as the chapter begins that God created men and women as opposite sex in order that within the covenant of biblical marriage, each might demonstrate the quality of God's agape love to the other in every aspect. The act of sexual intimacy is no exception. It is, in fact, the pinnacle aspects of biblical marriage which agape love and the sense of physical, mental, and spiritual oneness is experienced and in its rightful place expresses the union that God intended. At the same time, both man and wife are jointly and individually seeking fellowship and union as members in the body of Christ, the church. Each must be in hierarchical perspective at all times. Neither a man nor a wife can fully please, honor, and respect the other as God desires unless they first fully please and honor and respect God. If we are married, then any man or wife who wants to please, honor, and respect God cannot do so while they have little or no thought to displeasing, dishonoring, or disrespecting their spouse. In the midst of this, we should be realistic and recognize that we are dealing with the dynamics of the marriage relationship post-Genesis 3. What could have been and should have been is now very much infected by sin. If our relationship with God is separated by sin, how much more our relationship with a spouse who, unlike God, is also imperfect due to sin? We cannot hope as humans with inability to have ability apart from God to help ourselves, much less help a relationship with our spouse 
who also suffers from inability. As a result, oftentimes the solution is for each spouse member to first seek God in order to seek God's grace for their own respective issues before they can be in a position to allow God to work on the issues of the relationship. During these short, finite periods, each spouse can dedicate themselves to fasting, prayer, and devotions in an effort to seek God's grace and work in their lives. The closer each spouse can fellowship to God, the closer each spouse will be to one another. This is because we first love Christ. If then each spouse is emulating and being conformed to Christ's image, then it stands that each spouse will see and discern that within the other and will therefore be drawn to the other for that reason. The purpose for seeking consent and for keeping the period of time short in refraining from sexual intimacy is found both at the start of this chapter and at the end of verse 5. Firstly, we are assuming that many have the innate desire to engage in intimacy with the opposite sex. The debate is to, quote, touch or not touch, unquote, the opposite sex. We must admit that there are some who may not have the gift of being able to focus on God's kingdom while being free of the desire to engage in the pleasures of the marriage covenant. If so, we acknowledge the reality that there was a need to enter into biblical marriage so as to satisfy those desires which God has given in a way which is blessed and ordained by God. Conversely, we acknowledge that biblical marriage was the primary reason and purpose to prevent engaging in any number of anti-biblical relationships, including fornication, which would tend to frustrate living according to God's perfect will, and would provide additional fodder with which Satan could and likely will tempt or accuse us. We should also not kid ourselves that our desires which God has given do not cease at the altar or after the honeymoon. They don't stop at any given time despite being married. This is the reason behind the admonishment for godly married couples to be diligent, to be attentive to the needs of their spouses as their own. If there is a reason to cease for a time, then the careful need to be brief as well as to be prayerful, is in part driven by the fact that Satan can use those instances to tempt one or both spouses into falling into seeking alternative avenues to satisfy the needs which exist. In verse 6, Paul continues saying, quote, But I speak this by permission and not of commandment, for I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn." Unquote. In other words, given the question at hand, i.e., is it good for a man to touch a woman, unquote, Paul states that his answer is his opinion driven by common sense, experience, and the general revelation of God's word. Paul then goes on to wish that 
if possible, they would be able to have the same gift as Paul. If people are unmarried or widows, it is preferable for them to remain so, just like Paul. Since Paul was a Pharisee, which required its candidates to be married, we draw the conclusion that Paul was married and that at some point his wife died, since Paul only mentions being unmarried and not being widowed here. We further assume that Paul's conversion provided the change necessary to allow Paul to focus his life and mission on God's kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. This being said, Paul acknowledges that the issue is one of God's gifts, one way or the other. For those who did not or do not possess such a gift, Paul declares that biblical marriage is preferable than constantly being distracted and tempted by sexual desire without any way to satisfy the desire in a biblically ordained and blessed way. Beginning in verse 10, Paul turns from his opinion to what God has ordained and commands. Quote, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife." Unquote. Here again the ideal is what God originally ordained for marriage. A man and a wife should be one flesh, and they should not be separated. If that cannot be achieved, then the next option should be reconciliation, if at all possible. Failing reconciliation, if the man and the woman divorce, they should remain unmarried from that point forward. What this attitude does is to reinstill and maintain a sense of seriousness to marriage, which today is all too often viewed as simply another disposable commodity. More importantly, in proper context, what we learn is that when we view our spouse as being equal in importance and significance to our own body, very few people would seek to separate themselves from their own body because they are upset, disappointed, angry, etc. Instead, most people instinctively take care of, appreciate, love, and protect their own body. Just so. A spouse who abides in a relationship with Jesus will, by nature of God's indwelling spirit, seek to do the same with their spouse who is one with them via marriage. Continuing in verse 12, Paul states, quote, But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife and believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God hath called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Unquote. 
In verse 12, Paul changes pace regarding returning to his opinion, guided by experience and discernment. Paul then addresses the issue of unequally yoked marriages. What do we do if one spouse is saved and the other is not? When we say unequally yoked, we are talking about married couples who were both unsaved or outside of a relationship with Jesus, and the man and woman got married in that condition. After getting married, either the husband or the wife goes on to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus, while the spouse does not. In these situations, Paul recommends that the believing spouse, man or wife, should not seek divorce simply because they have been saved and their spouse has not. Instead, the believing spouse is admonished to witness to their spouse, to demonstrate the greater love of Christ in their marriage. The saved spouse becomes a living example of transformational change made possible by the justifying and sanctifying power of God's indwelling spirit. In essence, the saved spouse becomes a humble yet powerful embodiment of the good news of the gospel and its saving power upon the heart, mind, and spirit to minister to the unsaved spouse and bring them to reconciliation. During the marriage, the saved spouse sanctifies the unsaved spouse. What this means is three things. Firstly, in a practical way, whenever a spouse meets Christ and comes to a saving relationship through grace by faith, the transformational change in the power of God's Spirit working in that person's life cannot help but affect the unsaved spouse in any number of ways which serve to change them. Second, since a married couple is seen by God as one flesh, one body, God's grace cannot help but fall on the unsaved spouse for the sake of the saved spouse and their welfare. The unsaved spouse will not be justified by the saved spouse because Justification is an individual, personal experience and a relationship attained by God's grace through individual repentance and reconciliation via individual faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. But sanctification, which is nothing more than change, can occur on a certain level simply by the day-to-day -day interaction and conviction of the saved spouse's behavior in their relationship with Christ. Third and last, because of the first two points, God sees any children that the husband and wife produce together as also being sanctified. Like the unsaved spouse, the children are not justified for the same reason. It is based upon a personal relationship with Christ. However, like the unsaved spouse, the children will be affected by the acts and behavior of the saved spouse in the same way as the unsaved spouse will be affected. Not only this, the, uh, not only this, the saved spouse will teach the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord according to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. So in each case, God is working to draw those whom he wills to relationship with himself. 
Within the marriage, each spouse is called to be an example of God's transformational power and love, which can only serve to either help the process if they are called, or to be a witness if they rebel. The only time that divorce is considered is when the unsaved spouse is no longer willing to remain married to the saved spouse due to their salvation and consequential transformation. Under these circumstances, if the unsaved spouse divorces, the saved spouse is no longer under bondage to their marriage vows and is free. Because as Paul says, God calls the believer to peace. Before our reconciliation with God, we all were at enmity with God. We were justly under God's wrath due to sin, rebellion, and separation. But thanks be to God when God calls us to repentance, God's wrath, which was due to fall on us, was poured out on his son, Jesus. Jesus' perfect righteousness and holiness is imputed to our account, and our debt to God is paid in full. We are at complete peace, being fully justified before God. But let's be practical. If an unsaved spouse is not content to live with a saved spouse, they will either leave or threaten to leave if the saved spouse does not renounce Christ and their new found change of heart. This places an unmistakable line of tension between loving, serving, and obeying God and pleasing the desires of an unsaved spouse. In the end, Jesus states in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, quote, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Thus, whenever a conversion becomes an issue within a marriage, the unsaved spouse holds the controlling decision on whether they can and will be willing to peaceably remain within the marriage where their spouse has been saved and now serves God first and foremost, or whether they will leave and seek divorce. The position of the saved spouse is to be patient, understanding, loving, prayerful, humble, and seek the welfare of the unsaved spouse to their utmost ability without denying or rebelling against God. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part five. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P A S. T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.